When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So, Jay, you're out, you're free, you're rehabilitated. What's next? What's happening? What you gonna do? You got the money you owe us, motherfucker? Look, let's just get something straight here. The reason he got locked in the slam in the first place was for sticking up a gas station to cover you guys. You're kidding. He pulled that job to pay for the band's room service tab from that Kiwanis gig in Cole City. You did? That's right. So I don't want to hear any more of this small change shit. We're putting the band back together. Now, who here at this table can honestly say that they played any finer or felt any better than they did when they were with the Blues Brothers? You were the backbone, the nerve center of a great rhythm and blues band. You can make that live, breathe, and jump again. Murph and the Magic Tones, look at you in those candy-ass monkey suits. And I thought I had it bad in Joliet. At least we got a change in clothes, sucker. You wearing the same shit you had on three years ago. Jake ain't lying, though. We had a band powerful enough to turn goat piss into gasoline. But we'll never get that fat sound again, not without some more horns. We'll never get Mr. Fabulous. Or is he? Forget it. Mr. Fabulous is the top maitre d' at the Shea Paul. He's pulling down six bills a week. Yeah, and Matt Murphy up and got himself married. Where is Matt Guitar Murphy? He opened a soul food restaurant with his old lady on Maxwell Street, and he took Blue Lou with him. You'll never get Matt and Mr. Fabulous out of them high-paying gigs. Well, yeah. Well, me and the Lord, we got an understanding. We're on a mission from God. What's going on? This is Justin from the Blue Stones, and you're listening to the Hook Rock Podcast with Jay Scott. Hello, America! This is the biggest collection of heavy metal maniacs in the history of the world! We're gonna go crazy some more for you with this one. You might know it. This is heading out to the house. Hey! 
evening, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. I hope you're doing well and staying safe and staying healthy. Happy Memorial Day weekend to all of you. Feels like this is the coming out for a lot of us. I know we've been kind of increasing our activities over the last few months as the numbers of COVID have improved. The vaccination numbers keep rising, which is good. Uh, the number of deaths is decreasing every day, as the number of cases are too as well. So everything's kind of going in a positive direction or is going in a positive direction. I think everybody's kind of happy or maybe maybe happy is not the right word, but satisfied with the direction we're going because we kind of do feel that the end is upon us very near. We're still not out of it completely. We still are having people not get vaccinated, unfortunately. We still have people that are getting sick from it. Um, A lot of other countries are having difficulties getting it under control, like South America, namely Brazil and Colombia and India as well. And they may seem like far off places, but as we saw in late 2019 into early 2020, it affects everybody. You know, just because one country is dealing with this does not mean that we are above it and it can't happen here as we've seen. We do seem to have a handle on how to protect ourselves against this. I know there's been some confusion with mask wearing and not mask wearing. I still wear my mask when I go out in public just because I know... I'm not 100% confident yet, and I think that's just going to take time. I'm sure there's a lot of people in the same boat as me. If I am outside, I don't wear it. Um, And also, if I know I'm around someone that has a compromised immune system or a pre-existing condition, like myself, uh, I do wear it. I I do, you know, just out of respect for that individual because I know... There is still a bit of fear out there, but I think we're moving past it. And it's just going to be interesting to see what habits we bring with us into the new normalcy or the return of normalcy, whatever that's going to be. Um, I still think people are probably going to wear masks in certain places more than others. I think that's okay. I think we should just respect each other and let people do what they want to do, let people do what makes them feel comfortable. We shouldn't admonish anybody or yell at anybody. I had an experience uh, probably about three weeks ago walking out of a restaurant with my son and his friend where I was verbally attacked by an individual because I had a mask on in the restaurant. And keep in mind, this is still before Illinois and the Chicago area went into a bridge phase, which is kind of the phase that kind of brings us back to normalcy. And uh, I was walking out with my son and his friend, and he started to, I mean, my son and his friend, they're 16 years old. The guy started to yell at my son and his friend for I don't know what. And then I came around the car and was like, hey, man, what are you doing? You're yelling at two 16-year-olds. Then he asked why I was wearing a mask, and then he just laid into me for that. So that was an interesting experience. Never never thought I'd have to go through something like that. And it was a brief moment, probably a total of no more than 30 seconds, 45 seconds and uh, we got in the car and we left. Um, but still, having to deal with that was really uncomfortable. You know, we were at a restaurant and 
mask mandate was still in place in Illinois. We were following the protocols and following the rules. And yet I have someone, you know, basically on my ass in a parking lot because I've got a mask on with my son and his friend. Uh, Just absolutely ridiculous. You know, you see the videos online about the Karens and I don't know what the male counterpart is for the Karens that people videotape, but here I am like, I can't believe I'm actually involved in this situation. can't believe I'm getting yelled at for having a mask on, but whatever. Just please respect everybody out there. It's going to be a while before people do get comfortable. I do think at some point, you know, barring any changes, I think that will return. Uh, when that is, let that, you know, let the individual decide when that's, when that level of comfort is there for them. But I know concerts are starting to get booked up. The The concert venues, the clubs, the theaters, the halls are starting to announce dates. I've noticed a pattern of the majority of them are late summer into fall. So you're looking at like August, September, October are getting booked. There are some bands that um, are booking dates right now for June and July. I know in June... I'm going to go to see Nielsen Trust and Nick Perry and the Underground Thieves, so I'm looking forward to that. And also Joyous Wolf is playing at a uh, small club out here, probably about an hour from me, but you know, to see Joyous Wolf, it's definitely going to be worth it, so I'm excited about that. Uh, I know there's another festival. I think there's one with uh, Hailstorm and Miles Kennedy and... Uh, I want to say Dirty Honey's in it, Chevelle. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to go both nights. I'm going to pick one that I want to go to, so we'll see how that goes. But that's an outdoor thing, obviously. Uh, So I'm excited to go see that. That should be pretty cool. And I know Blackberry Smoke, who just released a new album yesterday, uh, is going to be playing at the Aragon Ballroom, which is a great venue in Chicago. So I'm looking forward to seeing them. I've, I love seeing that band live. They're just a tremendous live act. And uh, their new album, You Hear Georgia, was released yesterday. And it was recorded live. So it really does get the elements of what makes them so awesome on that record. But go check that out. I highly recommend it. Great album for 2021, as there are many right now. But also, before I begin, we are part of the Pantheon Podcast Network, the pod, the network of music podcasts. I know I mentioned that now at the beginning of every episode, so please go check out PantheonPodcast.com. Check out the other podcasts that are on that platform. There's so many great music podcasts like Cobras and Fire, Shout Out Loudcast with my guys Tom and Zeus, Mistress Carrie, who was just on the show, who's got a great, awesome show. Vinny Apice, Carmen Apice, who I'm hoping to have on pretty soon. So we'll see what happens with that. As well as Martin Popoff, rock, hard rock, heavy metal historian, who was on the show too um, earlier this month. Great guest, great uh, chat about the new wave of British heavy metal, which I love to chat about. And thank you all for the feedback on that. But, uh, just a great platform. Happy to be part of the family. You know, the, the show is reaching more people than ever before. And, you know, we've just had a string of some great months. So we continue to have that and continue to work towards building it even more. And we have got some great guests coming down the road too as well. So hope you all enjoy that. Follow us on Facebook. Follow us on or like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Subscribe to wherever you get 
your podcast to the hook rocks write us a review let us know what you think always interested in hearing your thoughts as to how we're doing what we're doing and who we're having on and what we're talking about so i appreciate all the feedback always i wanted to do this episode for a long time and i mentioned the impact this event had on me as a kid as an eight-year-old kid and today is the anniversary of the US Festival in 1983, the Heavy Metal Day anniversary, which had a huge impact on me, as, as well as many others my age and older. I was eight years old at the time, and the show was on cable, I think, we watched it on a platform called On TV. I want to say, I don't remember. I'm trying to remember the, you know. I mean, come on, it was 38 years ago. So forgive me if I don't know the exact, the exact uh, platform that we watched on. But nevertheless, this was a big moment for my brother and I, who up until that time, you know, we were you know exposed to heavy metal, hard rock. My influence of what I was listening to, in large part, was because of my brother. We also had a great radio station in Chicago called WMET that played rock music, everything from Van Halen to Priest to Greg Kinban to The Tubes, everything. It was a great radio station. There were other stations, too, like The Loop, but The Loop was more kind of mainstream rock at the time, whereas um, WMET was playing a little bit of the harder edge stuff. And, of course, we had magazines, you know, Circus Magazine, Hit Parader, Cream, Kerrang!, I don't think Metal Edge had come out yet for a few more years, but really the two big ones were Circus and Hit Parader. And when my mother would go to the grocery store, I'd go with her and I'd go to the magazine section. Granted, I was eight years old, seven years old. This is what we did when we were that age because we didn't have the fear of someone lurking around us, even though there were people that were doing bad things to kids. We still had a level of innocence that I don't know if that exists anymore. But nevertheless... I always hit the magazine section because I wanted to see what was going on with my favorite rock bands. And up until then, like I mentioned in our first episode, the introduction to the Hook Rocks, my first exposure was to Journey, and then Kiss, Van Halen, Quiet Riot, Judas Priest, all those bands that were coming out at that point, Y&T, um, just a, a, a plethora of great British bands. I remember hearing Saxon. I remember hearing... A little bit of Motorhead, uh, and it was just, it was just awesome. It was, uh, you know, it had like this edge to it that our parents didn't like it, which made us more attracted to it. And it was just mysterious. It it took us on a journey. I mean, when you think back, or when I think back of looking at the Iron Maiden posters on the wall of my neighbor's son's house. And it was like 82 or 83 or something like that. It was the number of the beast poster. It was just like, what the hell is this? This is a band. This, this, this entity makes music. It was crazy. And, you know, bringing that stuff into the house, whether it was Judas Priest, because I was a, I was raised Catholic. And of course, Judas Priest was, Judas was the traitor of Jesus. So that was a big no-no. And Iron Maiden with the imagery was a big no-no. And of course, Ozzy Osbourne was like the, the devil back then and i had to do covert ops in order to get certain music 
into my house and I had to listen with headphones and it was, um, it, that in itself was exciting, you know, because it felt like it was like outlaw, you know, like I was doing something my parents don't want me to do. And for every kid that age, that was like number one that, you know, I mean, if your parents didn't like something, you were like on board. So Memorial Day weekend came and it was a Sunday and my parents had a barbecue and they had family and friends over and me and my brother were hell bent on watching this festival because we were both into the music. We were both just addicted to hard rock and heavy metal. It was like a huge thing. So we basically stayed in the living room, in the TV room, whatever you call it, that whole day. And, you know, in between acts, we went and got our food and we said hello to everybody. But when a band was on, we were glued to the TV set as everybody else was sitting on the patio and, you know, enjoying the food and the camaraderie. We were in the house on like a nice end of spring day watching the Us Festival. And bear in mind, I was corrected on the Us Festival by the guys on Growing Up Rock podcast, Sonny Pooney and Steven. Um, I, I was calling it the U.S. Festival. And the only reason why I was calling it the U.S. Festival because I was corrected wrongly like years ago. Because I was saying the Us Festival, or and, and someone said, no, man, it's the U.S. Festival. And I'm like, are you sure? Because I remember it being the Us Festival. No, you've been pronouncing it wrong. So I, like a fool, started pronouncing it the U.S. Festival until I was on talking about Van Halen's Women and Children First on the Growing Up Rock podcast. Lo and behold, Sonny decided to start laughing at me, corrected me correctly this time, and told me, like, dude, it's, it's the Us Festival which I originally was calling it as a kid, but then someone I thought knew a lot of this stuff told me I was wrong and tell me I was wrong. How many people over the years probably looked at me like an idiot when I would say that? People normally look at me like I'm an idiot anyway, but um, that, was, uh, that was a fun conversation. Check that out. It's the Van Halen Women and Children First album review on the Growing Up Rock podcast. But getting back to the day, uh, it started out with Quiet Riot, who really was taking cable and MTV by storm with the album Metal Health. This was album was released prior to the to the festival, and it was really I think it was the first number one album from that era of music. From you know that hard rock era of the eighties, I don't think Rat had a number one album. I don't think Motley Crue had a number one album. And up until that point, Van Halen did not have a number one album. So Metal Health really broke through and was a huge success for Quiet Riot. It was released probably a little over three months or just under three months uh, prior to the US Festival, and they were having huge success with the song "Come On Feel the Noise." And they were the opener. Quiet Riot was an L.A. band and was the former band that had Randy Rhodes in it before he went to Ozzy. And the bass player was Rudy Sarzo, who has been in other acts as well. I think he's in the Guess Who right now. Also had Carlos Cavazos on guitar and Frankie Benali, who left us 
last year passed on, was just a great drummer, a very underrated drummer from that period of music. And of course, Kevin Dubrow, who was controversial. We used to say a lot of things in the press about other bands and would cause friction between other artists. I do remember reading articles and interviews of him bashing people and those people bashing him. He was not afraid to say and speak what what was on his mind. And... He also had a, a great voice, uh, a very underrated voice in rock history. Kevin Dubrow really could belt it. And we saw them come out and open up the day with a, an absolute scorching set list. It was just absolutely phenomenal. They started out with, with, this, with the song Danger Zone and to come on, feel the noise. And the day was set. You know, this was Quiet Riot. This was at the time one of the biggest bands in rock and roll. And they delivered. One of the things that you notice when they came on was the amount of people that were there. That was one of the things that was just, you were awestruck at how many people were packed in to the event. The event was held at the Glen Helen Regional Park in San Bernardino, California. And prior to the Heavy Metal Day, which is what they called it, the average crowds were between 250 and 300K. And the heavy metal day drew 670,000 people, which I don't know if there's been a festival in the States that has recorded or had that many people since then. It was just incredible, just a sea of people. My son, who's 16, who I talk a lot about on the show, who's been on the show a couple of times, was watching this on TV or on his phone, and he goes, Dad, there's so many people. But look at all these people at this show. And I said, yeah, it was, it was incredible. And that was part of, the, part of the whole experience of watching it is my brother and I never saw an event that had that many people at or in one place. You know, we've been to ball games at Wrigley Field um, at that point, and Wrigley Field held you know 40,000 So, you know, to see that many people and to just see it as far as the eye could see was just incredible. It was just an awestruck, inspiring experience that, oh, my God, these bands that we've been reading about in magazines and hearing on the radio, it felt like everybody in the world except us was at that concert. We also saw how hot it was there. It was over 95 degrees and you know, it was sunny. There was no shade. They were firing off hoses into the crowd to keep people cool. I know there were many episodes of heat exhaustion and heat stroke. Uh, It was just that added to it as well, that these people were asses to elbows in this huge, huge venue or this, this park watching these bands under the elements of just, heat and the bad the air quality from what i read that day was not that good so watching quiet riot with the crowd and everything going on really set the tone for like we were glued to the tv this is an event this is something that we don't want to miss the next band up was motley crew who had taken the sunset strip by storm with too Fast for Love, the, their debut album. And, of course, a lot of that is explained in their movie, The Dirt, which is a great great movie, great movie to document what was happening at that time. And they came out, and this is before the release of Shout at the Devil, 
They came out in their Shout the Devil stage gear. If you ever noticed Motley Crue from album to album, and I think most bands did this, but Motley Crue really had a, had a big difference from stage clothes from tour to tour. As we saw with Shout the Devil, it was more kind of like this apocalyptic Mad Max type of feel to it. Then they went to the glam with Theater of Pain, and then they had like this rugged look of girls, 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 and so on. But they took the stage, and they did a lot of songs from their Shout the Devil album that was yet to be released in uh, in 1983, I want to say. They were going to go on tour with Ozzy afterwards, which is another incredible tidbit about the uh, the band. Um, I mean, that was really heavily into you know, what, uh, what the movie was about was that tour with Ozzy. And that happened right after the us festival, which, uh, you know, we'll get to Ozzy in a bit here, but they were supporting shout the devil. They opened up with take me to the top and then went into looks that kill, but they did play a lot of new songs from the album that a lot of people were not familiar with, but still resonated with the crowd resonated with my brother and I, I mean, this was, you know, this was awesome back in the day too. You know, like if you didn't know a song, you didn't get up and leave or you didn't, you know, try to fast forward or what you do or whatever you do now. I mean, you listened, you sat there and you listened to it, which, you know, every time you go see a band, a legacy band that is on tour and they have a new album out, it seems like when the new songs come on, like 30% of the crowd goes and gets their concessions or goes to the bathroom or whatever. But that was not the case. I mean, you stayed and you listened, which another thing that was awesome about listening to music back then, you didn't decide what you wanted, didn't want to hear or what you wanted to hear. You, uh, you enjoyed the show as it unfolded. And Motley Crue probably, when now looking back, is probably the, the third biggest act of that day. When you look back now and you look back the, at the history, you know, I mean, of all those bands that were on stage, they're probably... You can argue, some people can say maybe, you know, Judas Priest or Scorpions, but I think Motley Crue in terms of being able to tour where they can tour and their, you know, how many people buy their music, I think they're just under Van Halen and Ozzy Osbourne. Um, I think those are the two biggest acts at the time, but, or, or as we look back in history. But they put on a great show, you know, Vince Neil, of course. Never known for his great vocals, does have a stage presence, but back then we didn't care. We didn't care what he sounded like. It was Motley Crue, man. You know, I mean, now when you listen to it, you're like, ooh, you know, I don't know about that, but um, it was just Vince Neil was the, was the definition of cool back then, and with those red Nikes and the black leather pants and kind of like this outline of shoulder pads that he had on, it was it was awesome. It was great, uh, great. Great opening act. Originally, Joe Walsh was going to be on this day, and they moved him to the Rock Day, which I think was smart because I think I don't think anyone would want to listen to Joe Walsh when they got some of these bands on the bill. I mean, Joe Walsh did have a reputation of being wild, and crazy. He shares many stories about him and John Belushi uh, tearing up hotel rooms and whatnot. But I still don't think he would have resonated with this crowd that was full of young kids who wanted to hear their metal at the time. So the next act was Ozzy Osbourne. And when you think Ozzy Osbourne being the third act with some of the other bands that came after them, it really was 
interesting to why he was placed third. He had just replaced Randy Rhodes with Jakey Lee. Brad Gillis was in between doing the, you know, doing the tour, finishing out the tour for Ozzy after Randy had died. And then he went with Jakey Lee. Brad Gillis went to back to Night Ranger, who had yet to really take off. And I don't think they released anything yet. I think their album was still yet to come, which I think was Dawn Patrol. I know Jake had been touring with Ozzy prior to that. Um, I know the crowd was really rough on him uh, during his stint with Ozzy because he was following a legend like Randy, and you know the, the crowd really did heckle him a lot during the shows. And I think that may have been why he didn't last very long. He only lasted two albums, Bark at the Moon and Ultimate Sin, uh, when you consider, you know, obviously Randy died, so he was not in there as long as you know, we all had hoped he would be. And then, you know, Zach Wilde's been in there forever, off and on for the past couple of decades. But, you know, Jake really did not, does not really speak fondly um, about his times in Ozzy's band, whether it was his experience with the crowd at the time. And oddly enough, he is thought of as a very underrated guitar player now but again back then you're following a legend and then also his experiences with Sharon Osborne that he's been very candid about over the past several years about not getting songwriting credits on certain songs and on certain albums and you know uh, however you slice it that's not cool that's not fair but Ozzy came on and Ozzy I believe did a stint in rehab either before or after the show I can't remember but Ozzy Osbourne back in the 80s was thought of by almost every parent I knew to be the devil. You know, we could not have Ozzy's music in our house. We could not listen to it. And it caused us to crave it more. We had to go and find someone at the park who lived in our neighborhood who had it. And we had to listen to it on the old boom boxes back then and at the park. Or we had to get like a mixtape for those young people that, we're listening. These were called. These were the original playlists back in the day, where your buddy or your friend or you made a tape for them of songs that you were listening to or songs that you thought were cool. If you wanted to, you know, let a girl know how you felt, you displayed your feelings on these mixtapes and you conveyed your love to that female with the music. The music spoke for you. Was able to tap into your sensitive side, but. That was the only way we could listen to Ozzy is by you know coming in with a tape that didn't have any cover on it and uh, it was unlabeled so we didn't you know so the songs didn't say Ozzy you know bark at the moon or Ozzy you know crazy train or whatever it was that's how we listened to it. Um, I still remember having buying bark at the moon. I don't know if I bought it or someone gave it to me as a gift for a birthday or whatever the case was, but I had it in my room one day and I had listened to it once and I put the cassette on the bed and I never saw it again. I never saw that cassette again, ever. You know, I think my mom or dad threw it in the trash, whatever they did with it. But Ozzy came on and Ozzy really did a great set. You know, Um, back when I was younger, I really wasn't a fan of Ozzy because of you know, how I was, you know, I was raised Catholic and I was told how evil he was. So I was always kind of nervous about listening to him, even though I kind of like some of the songs. Um, it wasn't until I really got older that I learned to appreciate Ozzy. You know, when I say older, like 14, 15 years old, 
just because, like I said, you know, raising, being raised Catholic, hearing about how horrible he was by the nuns and the priests at school, and my parents and relatives, and it was just like bad, 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 bad. So I watched Ozzy. Thankfully, my mother and father didn't come in the house while he was on because they would have told us to turn off the channel. Then they started would have started asking questions about what we're watching. It would have been a whole mess, and it probably would have ruined the day. But by fate, we uh, we continued watching, and Ozzy to put on a great show. Um, the next band was Judas Priest, who came on again, being raised Catholic. Judas, uh, the traitor of Jesus, as as uh, as I was uh, as I learned in in grade school, um, came on all on leather. And uh, was just awesome. My, one of my first experiences listening to hard rock and metal was my brother bringing home a tape, another mixtape, with two songs from Peace. You Got Another Thing Coming and a, their live version of Diamonds and Rust, which I believe was on Unleashed in the East. And they used to have those cassette players that you would put in. It wasn't a boombox. It was like the size of a, sh- a shoebox. It wasn't as thick, but it was it, it was like black, and it had the buttons or the 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 things you pressed, you know, on the side, on the right side. It had the the speaker on the left side, depending on how which way you had it flipped, and then the cassette would go would be inserted in almost the middle of it, and that's what you listened to, and it sounded like shit, as we all know, because it just had that small crappy little speaker on it. But my brother brought home a tape that his friend had made for him, and we listened over and over again to Judas Priest and Diamonds and Rust. So when Judas Priest came on, again, you know, a band that I was introduced to and a band that was kind of dangerous for me wasn't as bad as Ozzy, and maybe that's why it resonated with me a little more. But, man, they just cooked that show. And, you know, saw the Harley Davidson come on, the motorcycle come on during – um, Hellbent for Leather, uh, Rob Halford's voice was just incredible. At that point, I thought Priest was the best band live so far in that show. You know, the first four bands, Quiet Riot, Motley Crue, uh, Ozzy Osbourne, and then Judas Priest. So it was uh, it was just awesome. And you know, they, Rob Halford came on stage very casually, like he was walking backstage and, you know, he just walked onto the stage singing. Um, I think it was riding the riding on the wind or something like that. I think they opened up with that, but, um, just another great performance. And again, the crowd size and the heat and everything that went with it was just all part of the experience. I mean, we were watching this on an old Zenith. I think it was like a 25 inch or something like that. And, uh, it was, it was just, we're midway through the day. We had already eaten our lunch and our hot dogs. My mom and dad were coming in. Aren't you guys going to come outside? It's beautiful out. No, we were, we were ready to go. We were, we were all set. We were happy and content. We didn't care. And the next act that came on, which is a band called Triumph, who, uh, I'll be having a member of Triumph on the show later this week or part of next week's show. Um, to talk about Allied Forces in the Anniversary Edition, but Triumph was a band that people really forget how big and popular they were in the 80s, at least the first part of the 80s. I mean, you think of Allied Forces and and, um, and Never Surrender, some of the other albums they had, and as well as 
uh, Thunder 7, which was released after this performance, but they were a big band. And I know when fans think of Canadian trios, the first one that always comes to mind is Rush, and they should be. But Triumph, I don't think, gets enough love or gets enough appreciation about who they were and the songs that they wrote and the, the way they performed. Rick Emmett just had a fantastic voice. They had incredible songs like Laid on the Line, Never Surrender, which is my favorite song by them. World, I'm, I'm sorry, World of Fantasy is my favorite song by them. Uh, Magic Power and Rock and Roll Machine and Fight the Good Fight. I mean, they had incredible tunes and they were like epic tunes too they had like these you know really cool intros and they really took you on a journey they were they were hard rock they had elements of prog in them not as proggy as rush but again they were a big band and everyone asks you know or makes a comment it's like why was rush or why was triumph you know before or after Ozzy or after Priest or whatever, they were deserving of that of that spot on the bill. They were a big band. Allied Forces was a huge album. Never Surrender was a huge album. So they really delivered on that uh, on that performance on the at the US Festival in '83. And I think they're the only band to really hold the rights of that performance. And I think they've released it as well on both DVD and on. CD and special editions or whatever. I might be wrong on that, but um, just a great performance. They were awesome, which then led to Scorpions. Scorpions had the Black and Album released prior to this performance. They were getting mainstream success and mainstream acceptance with the song No One Like You, which up until then was their biggest hit, and many regard that as their best song ever. Blackout was a killer album with the title track. Again, No One Like You, Can't Live Without You, and Arizona, and I think China White's on there too as well. But that was a killer, killer album, and and a wild and crazy album cover too as well. Um, You know, and again, being a young kid and seeing that um, was just like, what the hell is this? And they had some other, you know, hits with The Zoo and some other things too. Loving You Sunday Morning, and they were also part of the 70s with some of the albums that they had, like Tokyo Tapes and Virgin Killer, and there were a lot of Scorpion fans from the old school days when they had Uli John Roth, but this was kind of the beginning of their popularity in the U.S., mass popularity, was started with Blackout, and really then ended up you know, just going off the charts with Love at First Sting. But they were an awesome band live, too. And I know I just said up until that point, Triumph was the best band live. Scorpions came on next. Scorpions was the best band that day. They And they've always been regarded, highly regarded, as being great live performers. And they delivered with their performance on the Us Festival. And to this day, I still think that's the best performance out of every band. Because the next band was Van Halen. And Van Halen was the biggest rock band at that time. And it continued for years with Van Halen being the biggest rock band at that time. They had this Tarzan-type vocalist and David Lee Roth that we all know and love. Obviously, Eddie Van Halen regarded as the best guitar player ever, the most innovative guitar player ever. You had Michael Anthony on bass. You had his brother, you know, the brother Alex Van Halen on drums. 
it was just a, a crazy, crazy performance, which they were late for. They were late coming on because being that they were the last band on the bill, as the story goes, they spent the whole day partying. And when they were originally supposed to go on, now this is, I don't know how, this is what's been told through the years. How truthful this is, I don't know. But this is kind of like the folklore of that show. And it showed because it was a very sloppy performance because they were supposed to go on at a certain time. They couldn't. They were delayed like an hour because they were not ready to go on because of how much partying they were doing. But they came on and and they did deliver, even though when you look back now, you do see that it's a very sloppy performance. When you're an eight-year-old kid watching that, you don't care. You see David Lee Roth. You see Eddie Van Halen. Eddie Van Halen just shredding and just, you know, running up and down the stage and Daily Roth doing his thing. That was it. That was, it was Van fucking Halen. And, um, it was, it was awesome. They did, they opened up with Romeo Delight. Um, they had the diver down stage and it was, it was their homecoming, you know, San Bernardino, they're from Pasadena. This was like their backyard. This was their show. And they were the first band to get 1.5 million for a single performance, which at that time, and I don't know how long that stood for, was the highest payout to an act for an individual performance. 1.5 million, which just showed you how big Van Halen was then, how part of pop culture Van Halen was and was be- and, and, and becoming part of pop, pop culture. It was just growing. I've mentioned prior in prior episodes about how they're mentioned in episodes of TV shows or movies back then. Van Halen was the biggest band, no doubt about it. And it led into 1984, which was released, you know, back in January of 1984, about seven months after this performance. But they were, they were why we sat there all day and watch those other performances. That was they were the kings of that of that day of rock and roll at that time. And when they released 1984, this performance propelled them into the superstar status that they became with 1984. One of the things that's really interesting about this festival is when you look at all the bands on this bill, with the exception of maybe Quiet Riot. Quiet Riot had released Metal Health about three months before, two months before the show. And they were having big success with it, with Come On, Feel the Noise, and then Metal Health, which was the the second video. Then they released Condition Critical. And Condition Critical had another cover, Mama, We're All Crazy, and Party All Night. Sign of the Times is, is a great tune. But it did not match the success of their first album. I think the album was probably rushed, and I also feel, too, that because of the Us Festival, the amount of bands that were coming out and into mainstream, mainstream rock on MTV, was more and more, and I don't think Quiet Riot really delivered to stay in the pack, to stay relevant with the popularity. Because after Condition Critical, you really, I mean, they had the album with Paul Shortino, and then they had another album with Kevin Dubrow later on, but they never equaled, they never even came close to that first album. And a lot of bands don't, or specific to Quiet Riot, 
it um, it just was what it was. I mean, you had bands like Rat, and you had bands like Maiden starting to rise in popularity, and you had all these bands coming out of L.A. that you know Def Leppard from the U.K. and it was just all these bands and, and Quiet Riot just kind of fell away. They just kind of faded. Um, they also had a lot of internal issues too as well, so that didn't help matters. But my point being is that all the bands that released albums after that festival were huge. Motley Crue released Shout the Devil, which was gigantic. Ozzy Osbourne released Bark at the Moon, which was not as good as Die Over Madman and Blizzard of Oz, but it was still a very popular, huge album for him. Judas Priest released Defenders of the Faith, which was the follow-up to Screaming for Vengeance. Screaming for Vengeance was a big album. Defenders of the Faith is regarded as one of their best. Um, Just a a huge album with songs like Sentinel and uh, Some Heads Are Gonna Roll and... Got heavy duty, love bites, just free will burning, just uh, just a great great album. Then Triumph, who released Thunder Seven after that, which was another big album, had the song Spellbound, which was a big song for them, and then into Scorpions, which had Love at First Sting, which was gigantic. Love at First Sting was a big big album, or that led to them releasing worldwide live because of that tour was so huge. I mean, they, they, they just were gigantic after that. And then of course, Van Halen with 1984, which was the last album at that time with David Lee Roth, they went in a different direction and introduced the keyboards, which a lot of people, you know, didn't like, but the crossover to mainstream success with that album was gigantic. The only reason why that album was not number one was because of Michael Jackson's thriller. But it was huge. So all most of the acts had just huge albums. And that festival meant so much to hard rock and heavy metal because that music really took over after that. It was always kind of underneath the surface. I mean, you had ACDC, you had Van Halen, you know, you had all the acts that were on this bill, all releasing stuff and all building a following. And it was more kind of like a underground thing it was more kind of like the the dirty little secret that all the young kids were listening to you know kids were starting to turn off the pop music like cindy lopper and duran duran and culture club and all that kind of stuff and what helped was the success of this show with all the people there almost seven hundred thousand people which outdrew the other festival days almost three to one it was it really connected with MTV and MTV really grabbed on to this genre of music, the genre we all know and love. And after that, you know, Twisted Sister and Rat and all these bands started to pop up on their videos and the imagery and the way they looked was just so appealing to a young kid, you know, because they just looked like outlaws. They looked like they looked like something dangerous. And MTV really connected with that form of music when MTV actually did play music. So it really, I mean, everyone always says MTV saved rock and roll. I guess there's some truth to that, but you also have to say rock and roll saved MTV because without each other, I don't know what would have happened to those bands. I think Van Halen would have been 
as popular, um, maybe not as popular without MTV, but it's still popular. But I don't think any of those other acts would have had the level of popularity without that source of music, that source of imagery that was part of the music with the videos. I don't think any of those bands really would have been as big as they became without MTV. And I don't think MTV would have been what it became without hard rock and heavy metal because there was a point where that ruled MTV, you know, whether it was twisted sister with, we're not going to take it or rat with round and round or Van Halen with jump and Panama and scorpions with Rocky, like a hurricane and just over and over the acts that were on Def Leppard with pyromania. I can't forget them. I mean, it really led to this, the, the floodgates for all these bands to start coming out. It was just, it was because of the us festival. It was because of when TV executives or, you know, ad executives saw the amount of people more than double what was at the other shows. And you knew it was young kids, right? And you knew they were all buying this music. I mean, if you're, if you're a, if you're an ad executive or, or a TV executive, you're watching that and you're going, or a record executive, you're, you're watching that going, we got to sign some acts that sound like these bands. Because look at the kids out there. You can't even see the end of the, the, show, the, the people out there. It doesn't end. It just kept going on forever. And that's also largely part two to Van Halen's reputation as a backyard party band back in the 70s. And Greg Renoff writes about that in Van Halen Rising, which is a great book that all of you should read. But this was the day that hard rock and heavy metal more or less took over. Mainstream rock, MTV, um, this was a parent's worst nightmare. And for two kids, my brother and I, eight years old and 12 years old, this was a dream. This validated our music and made it so much cooler. And we went to school the following day because school was about to, re- to get out. I think we had one week left. And throughout the summer, you saw more and more kids liking this music listening to this music and the rest is history. You know, I mean, it just, uh, it really was such an, a huge impact on rock music at that time. And, uh, you know, we're still benefiting from that day, March, May 29th, 1983, the day of the us festival, you know, just a little back history too. started by Steve Wozniak, co-founder of Apple and creator of the Apple one and two personal computers. Um, He really wanted to do this festival. This was the second part. There were three days, Memorial Day weekend, and there were three days over Labor Day weekend. Um, And uh, I'm thankful I was able to watch it. Thankful I was able to experience it thousands of miles away or hundreds of miles away. Um, It was a great moment for my childhood, and it was a huge impact on my musical journey. And I hope it was for you and those that, never experienced it or never got to watch it. You can find the videos on YouTube. You can search Van Halen us festival. You can search, um, scorpions us festival. You can do all that. So I hope you do that because it's a great, great moment. 
Anyway, everybody, enjoy your Memorial Day weekend. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It's a very personal episode for me uh, because it does really tap into why I'm the rock music fan I am today. So enjoy your barbecue. Enjoy friends and family. A lot of you are experiencing that for the first time in a while. I hope you have a great weekend, and we will talk again soon. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.